You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Another Name for Everything. As we wrap up season three, Paul and I thought that we would do something a little bit different for for this final conversation um, and just talk, just the two of us, about how we're trying to live out the values of the universal Christ, specifically in relationships, um, whether it's partnerships, marriage, or with our kids. Yeah, it was, I remember being so tickled by Richard saying, hey, you know, I have to run to go to this uh, appointment why don't you guys just take this conversation on relationships and how the two of you are living this out and what, what's coming up for you as you try to live out these values of the universal Christ. And uh, I was so elated by the way that, you know, we each kind of asked each other questions about how we are trying to live this in our own small ways, in our own large ways, within the rhythms of our lives and the relationships that are present to us, whether it's our kids, whether it's partners, whether it's friendships, and relationship to ourselves and to the world. How do we integrate what we've been really striving um, in the context and depths of uh, the themes of this this season of uh, the universal Christ? Yeah, and it's you know, I mean, we've known each other for a long time, Paul. So that's it's it's so easy to some might say too long. Too, <laughs> think so much, but there's like you know, there's there's a real familiarity and ease that I so appreciate yeah. in us being able to talk like we normally talk because you know this is actually how we share life and and every time we connect mm-hmm. and and talk about how we're doing in our relationships and how our families are and what practices are life-giving and, and how we're trying to adjust to the different phases of our kids life um, and and how yeah. they're growing and changing and how our relationships are growing and changing and so this conversation was actually recorded back in September which I have to confess, feels like a million years ago. So long ago. It feels like another life. Uh, So, we wanted to give that caveat before you listen to this conversation, but one of the things that you just mentioned to me is that, you know, even even though our lives have been radically shifted due to the pandemic, and now that, you know, we're all kind of in quarantine here— these uh, the the things that we talked about even in September are still useful in the sense that we can translate that into our current reality and say, okay, yeah. how do I practice this now? How do I practice this while being cooped up with my family? How do I work with this dynamic um, now that my work is like this? So I, I still hope that you will find this useful wherever you are in your journey and that you'll um, take something from this dialogue between Paul and I on the closing of Season 3 of Another Name for Everything. Well, this is pretty fun. We've never done an episode like this before. Dun, dun, dun. It's kind of exciting to think it's just you and I here. Um, Richard's on his way to Santa Fe, Mm -hmm. and we were just recognizing some of the way that some of these questions are rolling in. We've heard from a lot of folks about how does one do relationships on this path of con- contemplation, universal Christ? And so we just thought, let's give a crack at uh, being in conversation, just the two of us on this. Relationships with each other, relationships with our children, our relationship to work. Um, I think the nitty the nitty gritty of the practical and what this looks like is, uh, is it's going to be a fun opportunity for us to explore together. Yeah. Can I go first? Can I ask you a question? 
I think so. It'd be great if you said no. <laughs> Brie, I want to start big. I want to start with the perennial tradition. This, uh, And so this kind of goes outside the three categories that we had originally talked about. So surprise, Great, you're already surprise. breaking the rules. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. I am. But I know you're going to have such a beautiful answer to this. So how have the voices from the greater perennial tradition, whether they were mystics or not, how have they mentored you mm-hmm. in your life? Thinking about you know, the, the way that they've shown up and guided you, whether through text, through prayer practice, through art, who are those voices and what's that, what's that relationship look like? That is a good question. You know, I think in my childhood, it started early with the step of an ecumenical instinct that, you know, I, I think I've joked on this podcast that I was a part of a very conservative evangelical uh mission organization that was uh, that had sent us to Spain to convert the Catholics, mm. <laughs> save the Catholics. You all needed our help. You're welcome. And uh, so fascinatingly enough, though, um, you know, my parents had a very radical approach of working with the Spanish government and doing anti-drug programs, and they were so huge on cultural immersion. Mm. And so growing up, um, they were the first couple to raise their kids in the community where we were they didn't send us to to the um the the mission school that all the other missionaries were sending their kids to the american kind of institute and instead we were going to a spanish public school and uh into felt fully integrated as part of the community there and so i think the first step for me if i if i'm honest is that intuition that i had that um, there was something truly beautiful about the Catholic faith, and all my friends brought me to their comfort. Is it communion and confirmation? Is that right? Yeah, Am yeah. I saying that right? Yeah. And um, you know, participating in those moments of celebration with them, as well as just seeing like the you know the Virgin Mary statue being paraded in our little tiny you know cobblestone streets, and there was this just sense that okay this has to be bigger than the boxes that I was given. God has to be bigger than, than, you know, my Sunday school definitions. And I think that instinct has only continued to grow over the years. So that first instinct that said, mm, <laughs> I'm not quite sure this is right. I think, I think there's enough room for everybody here. Um, over the years uh, has expanded to make room for other traditions and, um, and also scientific viewpoints as well, like making room for um, the tradition of science as being an important voice in that perennial tradition, if that makes sense. Mm. But I think lately, uh, and I think we've been talking about this a lot, Paul, is where I'm finding a lot of um, just uh, interest and where I feel attracted to right now is in Zen Buddhism. And um, recently joined a Sangha on Sunday mornings and I'm just really enjoying learning from this beautiful tradition and the practical approach that it has to daily life and an orientation toward practice. Um, yeah, so I don't, I don't know if I fully answered your question except to say it's been a slowly expanding. Uh, the image that comes to mind is like a pebble being dropped in a lake. You know, mm. it's like it's the ever widening circles are making room for more and more. Um, yeah, how about you? Yeah, for me, you know, I being raised in the evangelical world and really feeling safe and at home in that box of order mm-hmm. and a, a deep bow and gratitude for that because it really did ground me in the sense of uh, 
knowing I was loved by God and mm-hmm. that it was safe to love God and God was a loving figure, albeit uh, a white male with a big old beard. Right. But um, that one. That one. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That one in the sky. Yeah. I think he he shows up in a lot of early life and also cartoons mm-hmm. often looks that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, as my path unfolded and I, I dipped my toe, I always think of Brother Lawrence as the, the gateway, as the gateway that, mm-hmm. that monk who led me into more of the, the, the mystical tradition in, uh, through very practical ways of being nicknamed the Lord of Pots and Pans, but always trying to be in tune with the presence of God in that work. And then through uh, the likes of the beat writers, I was that guy in high school who loved Jack Kerouac. And Jack, can you just stop bragging about how cool you were in high school? Uh, I mean, like most of us were like, you know, like into Britney Spears, and you're like reading Thich Nhat Hanh and yeah, it's Jack not cool. Kerouac. It's not cool at the time, though. Really? You know what I mean? Kerouac uh, is, is like it, a though, really? is like a characteristic that I feel like a lot of. Um, young white privileged men go through okay that that need for like trying to thanks for making it less cool for me. I appreciate it. <laughs> trying to trying to get into the the experience of life yeah and with his his own catholic background and then transition to zen um helped open my own mind to uh other religions and philosophies that i could see were not in competition yeah. with my home tradition but mm-hmm. could be in conversation and so, I mean, I often hold up Brother Lawrence and Kerouac as those who allowed me to to welcome Thomas Merton into my life, mm. um, who has been for me and continues to be the, the major springboard into so much of my own spiritual curiosity and also music too. You know, I know that you're obviously um, a musician and that those voices echo in your head as well. And then all of a sudden it's, it's like a weird party in your in your experience, right? You have like musicians, philosophers, mm-hmm. mystics that are all speaking truths to you in different ways. And mm-hmm. sometimes you're paying attention to one crowd more than another. And uh, this is my, where we, I've gone down this Zen tunnel this summer. And yeah. it's been funny how that's been true for both of us just in, in our conversations and what we're reading and what's, what's lighting us up. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you bring up music because I was just thinking about that, that, that this, this, um, expansion into listening to the perennial wisdom is mm. is almost like the difference between focusing in on one note and then expanding to a chord and it's like it's all harmonizing right but it's just whether or not you can continue to expand and, and allow more notes to build up that chord mm. um, and to notice where there's resonance and to notice where the harmony is and to to give ourselves permission to to travel and be fed by these different streams is um i don't know that's just the image that came to my mind i love that image it's funny how like those images sometimes can really uh let me see anew mm-hmm. uh growing up in the evangelical world where like the, the bible images are so prevalent that sometimes they lose some of that uh that edge in right. a way does that make sense yeah where, like what you just said just music is so much a part of my life as an appreciative practice and uh so you connecting those dots just really resonates with me speaking of music and this isn't on our list of things to talk about for this episode but i just wanted to say we didn't talk about this um paul and i started a secret dance group with some other fellow contemplative friends we sure did and uh we it was it was like a closed group because uh 
for one, we were at Mystic Soul together, which is a conference. I don't know if people, no, I'm sorry, not Mystic Soul. We were at Wild Goose. We were at Wild Goose together. And um, it's a kind of a festival conference uh, that happens in the summertime. And, and many of us were gathered there together. And they do this thing. What is it called? It's with the, uh, the silent disco. Silent disco, where they give you headphones and everybody has headphones on. And then it's playing the same music. So it's like you can have a dance party, but not have it be very loud for like noise regulations. I cannot tell you what a hilarious image it is to see all these people dancing like full on and like some of them singing along very tone deafly, but like nobody can hear each other, (laughs) but everybody's dancing to the same song. It's awesome. But anyway, it it got us uh, thinking about how much we all loved dancing. And we decided to start a group called dance like a monk does in the closet. And it's a profound practice that we will probably never share publicly. Never, ever publicly. <laughs> but we encourage all of you to practice that dancing, dancing uh, as a contemplative practice in your own lives. Yes. It's a, it's a beautiful gateway to further embodiment is the way I would try to <laughs> Particularly when Paul is dancing. Yeah. It's, yeah. I can't move, so I can't it's, lie. Just takes you right into mystical union. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So speaking of relationality and relationship, should we um, dive into a question on relationships? Yes. I want to ask you a question. You ke- Okay. Yeah. I want to, I want to keep going. I want to be, the, I want to be driving this. Okay. I can see that. <laughs> I, well, I want to start with this question because I feel like it, it really is an overarching question that, uh, that lands in your bucket of creativity. Oh boy. Um, so we joke a lot about the way that creativity is so much a part of your life and the way that word pops up often in conversation, but it is, it's integral to to every fiber of who you are in all of your relationships. Mm -hmm. And so in this moment, I want to hear from you, how is creativity a linchpin in your work life? How do you relate Mm -hmm. to creativity as a part of how you relate to work? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's an amazing question. You know, we kicked off this season talking about values and I had actually spent some time this summer working on my own version of that. Like what are the values I want to live by? And one of them is creativity. Mm. And what I mean by that is not just making space for me to work on my own projects, but rather an entire orientation to um, the flow that Richard talks about to living my life in such a way that I'm not holding back, but that I'm fully participating in the mystery of Christ and in the manifestation of Christ. So I think for me, it's, it's um, recognizing that I have to create space to be able to uh, express that in different ways, Um, whether it's in music or in writing or in being present to my kids or playing with them, painting with them, um, being in community with my friends, Mm -hmm. it's uh, gardening, it's, um, being a neighbor, it's you know my cat. It's the plants that I take care of. So for me, it's this kind of orientation toward the relational whole. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is very difficult to live in a space of creativity if you are really, really attached to um, an intensity of life that that values success or stress. Um, and I kind of equate the two. Mm. Like, I think that if we are oriented toward ambition, 
it makes it very difficult to live a life of, of true creativity because creativity requires a quality of playfulness, an ability to risk, and an ability to not take ourselves so seriously. Um, and I think those are counterintuitive energies for our, our um, countercultural uh, energies in our world right now because yeah. everything around us wants us to, you know, be uh, stressed out, be super busy, you know, climb the ladder, achieve more, make more money. Um, so I think for me, it's it's slowing down and making space. It's my commitment to wanting to live a present life and um, a life of slowness where I can actually live with integrity that then gives way for a, a, a spaciousness to be creative and mm. to be playful and to take on projects but not take them seriously, to um, do things uh, that are creative not for any other end than for the sake of doing it as as prayer, um, as life itself. Mm. Mm -hmm. I love how you're redefining what success means to you, not taking on what the supposed success is climbing the ladder to this point, but you're saying a successful life is a creative, slow, intentional life yeah. full of presence. Yeah. Well, it's something you and I have talked a lot about. I wonder if you could share, Paul, because um, I really admire this, and it's something I feel like I'm learning from you, is how have you noticed shifts in your relationship to work, maybe mm. in the last 10 years, as you've become a father, mm. um, as your own priorities have changed? How has it changed or not changed um, how you think about work? Yeah. Yeah, it's changed drastically. You know, there was a season in my life where I never worked more than nine months a year um, because I was just finding work that would allow me these grand spaces. Often I was in an academic institution. Mm -hmm. So I could have an entire summer to travel, explore, be lazy, live in a library for a week and just, you know, get lost in books and uh, go camping. Um, and and so that that was a wonderful way for me to spend my 20s. Mm -hmm. Just trying to, Again, this is that Kerouac instinct I had mm. of just trying to see as much as I could from a very low level, like trying to taste life from the dirt up and not just try to um, have experiences that were of ascent, mm -hmm. for lack of a better phrase. And um, so. Like you weren't like a raging capitalist? No. I, it's so funny because I could really picture you being a raging <laughs> capitalist. Paul. Now, I was very, I'm very grateful that I was able to live on the other end of the spectrum for a while. Where I'm just kidding. I know, I know, totally. Um, that I was able to live in such a way where I had friends who let me live on their couches or their back porches. Mm -hmm. I could kind of live a much slower life when I, I didn't know what I wanted to do or how I was going to um, make a living in the world. Mm -hmm. And so I was really putting those just new experiences at the forefront of um, my way of relationship to work. And as I found my way here to the CAC, um, I got very excited. You know, there's a passion to this work that really drew me in. And I think I went to the other extreme where I was able to throw myself into the work and stay late and all those things that... Well, it's so hard when you're so passionate about yeah. something to not get totally sucked in, right? And it, it was a new organization for me. So I just stepped into it with like everything i had heart wide open yeah and and it never disappointed you right it you just like you were never ever disappointed by the organization ever yeah it's not funny <laughs> never disappointed um 
Yeah, and then reality struck, you know, of uh, the seasonality of of attempting to do too much or being disappointed by uh, any institution, uh, any institution, and, and yeah. idealized version that I was living with in my mind, mm-hmm. and that really helped me create a profound shift of how I relate to work, where even though I am still passionate about this work, I knew I had to right size it, mm-hmm. and I knew that for me to be in healthy engagement with the sense of vocation I have to being a contemplative in the world, um, I had to reorientate how I showed up to work mm-hmm. and what my boundaries were. And so part of the way I did that was recognizing the limitations of what I can give each week, which I know sounds mundane or small, but it helped to create a container of um, when I would tip from work life back into home life or community life because I needed that. I actually ritualized that in my day so I could let go. I was just going to ask you that. Like, what's your ritual to transition? It's super cheesy. So, okay, um, let's hear it. Beg the, uh, forgive the cheese. So at the end of every day, I pull the shade down and just say, the shade is closed. The day is done. That's awesome. And so it's a way for me to do something physical. Yeah. Again, very light physical. Right. Um, but then it, it's that it's that marker that this I am leaving the the workday. Mm-hmm. Things are left undone. Things are going to be there tomorrow, and I transition to going home, um, where I pick up a whole different work. Um, I think it is the work of marriage of parenthood, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a different way of engaging in uh, in livelihood. And both are joyful and. I just had, I didn't have them in right relationship to one another. And so it took me a while to reorientate myself to that. I really admire the way that you, um, you have such a healthy relationship with work. And ever since we met, I've, I've been impressed by the ways in which you have really, you center Laura, you center your children, you center your family life, and you have a really good relationship with where work um, begins and ends, Mm. you know? And I'm thinking about, the, how important it is for us to pay attention, especially for those of us who are in this first half of life phase and season, um, to pay attention to identification and how easily we become identified yeah. with what we do and then how that becomes such a drain in our lives. Because when when we're invested in trying to keep up this image of, oh, I am a such and such at this organization or whatever, mm-hmm. And we begin to live into that image more than we um, become aware of the rhythm of how we're living. And things get really out of whack really fast. Yeah. Was there a moment that you were able to recognize that for yourself? (laughs) I'm thinking particularly as a parent. I was going to say, yes, I am full of deep, deep perennial wisdom already. (laughs) I have figured this out. No, I'm totally in it. Um, But I do think that, you know, it is interesting in my 30s now, looking back and seeing changes since my 20s, right? Mm-hmm. I do think uh, music, for instance, it's very easy to become identified as a musician and, you know, with a persona and an image. And um, But I think that's true with any job, really. Totally, yeah. And I think it's been tricky for me because I've, I've, I work remotely and so I, I work at home. And uh, even when I had my kids when they were very little, I would... I would squeeze work into their work naps in like these erratic patterns throughout the day. I get a lot of energy from having lots of different projects and things going, but I'm just beginning to realize more and more 
the value of slowing down and choosing just a few of those projects and just a few of those juggling acts allows me to do them um, well and allows me to do them with my whole self. But as you were mentioning too, Paul, like the ability to put down the tools and be like, at the end of the day, even though it's never, ever done, Mm -hmm. there's always going to be another email. There's always going to be something else. But I think my kids have taught me how to be um, more committed to presence Mm. because it's in their eyes that I see when I'm absent. Mm -hmm. They reflect that back to me. And the older they get, the more I realize that this uh, stage of life is fleeting. And I don't want to miss it. (laughs) I don't want to miss being fully present with them as much as I can at this time. And I think one of the things we've been talking about um, that I've shared with you and Richard that I'm working on is, and this is this is brutal, so like I don't recommend this as a practice because it's kicking my ass, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard. But like to meet the gaze of my children's eyes with delight, mm. like to make that a practice mm. that when I'm looking at them, that to, to, to offer delight as what they see. You know, it's an intention. I can't say that I'm achieving that, but even to the point of waking up super early, you know, when one of the kids gets up and the other day Rowan wanted to, um, he woke me up at 5.40 in the morning and wanted to paint. To paint? Yeah, to paint. Like you do at 5.40 in the morning. I usually- That was me this morning. Yeah, you're like, where's my paintbrush? I'm ready to go. And I had this moment where I was just like, seriously, Rowan? Like, really? And, you know, I wish I could say that I was like very like, you know, contemplative about it. I was uh-huh. like, praise God. Yes. Let's let's go paint, son. Let's go. <laughs> and then I had like Zen music. No, yeah. I was so grumpy and I was frustrated. I was like, oh, I'm just give me my coffee and just get him. I'm like, you know, getting getting my act going. And then finally, it was probably by like 610 that I had set up a still life for him that he he felt was adequate. Oh, wow. <laughs> Got out the watercolors because I had decided that if, you know, if one of my values is to be present and another one of my values is to, um, toward creativity. Mm. And that's something like that. I want to instill that kind of playfulness in my children. Wow. Okay. Then I'm going to have to show up in this moment. And I'm so glad that I did because in that moment, I felt like he became my gateway Mm. and my access point to a morning of contemplation that was deeper than uh, you know, most prayer mornings are, you yeah. know, just sitting there with him, watching the paintbrush move on the paper. And um, I don't know where I got off on this story, except to say that there's something about uh, the orientation to being present to our kids mm-hmm. and recognizing that this is, this is it, like yeah. showing up for them and showing up in, in the moment. It, it's, uh, it's the kind of connective tissue between how the universal Christ manifests, right? It's in all of these tiny, tiny, tiny decisions that I think something gets shaped in us and something is shifted yeah. within us. It reminds me, I was just talking to Doug, our new CEO here at the CAC, and I was asking about parenting, mm. and he you know, immediately said, you know, what you want to teach your kids, you have to embody first. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that should be like a, a tattoo that every parent gets, like, Mm-hmm. It helps you live into your own values or the things that you want to teach them. Right. And I think that is exactly what you're saying. And it, it's, because uh, it's, I feel like the temptation is folks want to teach their kids something that they have yet to fully live into. Mm. And not that we ever finish with any of the values at all, but um, 
you, you're what that story just models like yeah that was hard to get up at 5 40 in the morning and <laughs> get the paints out and set up the still life uh but you do it and i yeah. think that that to me is part of why it's so good to know your values um mm-hmm. from that very expansive sense so that you can impart them on your children in the most loving way and you can see how that expands becomes a reciprocal relationship of their teaching right back to you through those moments. Right. And it is intentional, isn't it? Like, it's just, I think it's about as parents bringing a little bit of intentionality into our relationships, our relationships with our partners, our relationships with our kids. Yeah. And Paul, like you, I've always been so impressed with how you and Laura bring that level of intentionality into your home. What are some practices that you all do like together? I think you mentioned like the once a month thing, You've oh, done other things. Changes. Yeah, you've done other things throughout the years. I wonder if you'd feel free to share some of that. Yeah. Um, you know, my wife Laura is uh much more social than me and just a much more interesting person. I mean, you're such a party animal. I can't <laughs> yeah. imagine and anybody being more of a party that's animal it. than you. That's it. And uh, <laughs> you know, I, I have that that street cred as the party animal. <laughs> but Part of what I think her gift is she will sometimes bring in folks who are from different aspects of our lives. Mm -hmm. And it creates these amazing kind of opportunities for conversations that wouldn't happen when it's um, just kind of the same group of people. And it's that hospitality spirit that just, there's moments in those conversations where I, I just recognize like, oh, this is what Jesus did, table fellowship, you know, having a meal, having a beer. Mm -hmm. But then creating opportunities for conversations to drop to that depth mm-hmm. where the the humor and depth plays off each other and all of a sudden you feel like time is sta- standing still but you're sharing from such a vulnerable heart space mm-hmm. that uh, it is a, that church moment of the two or three are gathered mm-hmm. and so i feel like she's really good at cultivating that space um and i just try to show up uh in those moments because there's that introverted side of myself that's like i'd rather just not right now yeah i mean so that's a big one and then also um dedicated times of uh in nature mm-hmm. we both love to be in the mountains here in the bosque um and we've had these kind of intentional check-ins where it's like how have these last three months been and what do we hope to do in these next three months mm-hmm. so, so you not, do it like almost seasonally yeah like, in, a, in yeah. a very seasonal manner um so that we don't get caught up in and they're not things like, oh, let's try to make more money this quarter. It's nothing like <laughs> it's not like that. It's like, um, how do we take opportunity of what's going on in our community? Mm-hmm. How are ways that we're we're centering creativity for our kids by what we put out in our in our house, mm. which is something we've learned from you. Mm. Um, so it's like trying to live uh, and be intentional about living an integrated life of not getting caught up in just the busyness of being a parent. And that's so easy. It's to so do. easy. We just go into like autopilot, you know, it's so easy to just kind of go into that autopilot and in in a way, and I don't want to, I'm not dissing school systems here, so please hear me, but it's like we let the school calendar take over and we let the extracurricular calendar yeah. take over. Next thing you know, you know, you're not even home for three, four nights out of the week because you've got soccer and band and music and whatever. Yeah. And I think especially in this culture to do a practice is that you are modeling with you and Laura, where you, you take stock, you stop, you pause and say, all right, what are the things, what are the values that we have that we've decided we want to live into? 
and then say, how are we doing? Like, how are, how can we make more room for that? Or how can we lean into these desires a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of that too, for us is, I mean, I love to laugh and I love to make her laugh. And I Like in the Mary Poppins song, like, I love to laugh. I don't know that one. Wait, what? Can you please do No, uh, no, no. Love to laugh. Ha, ha, ha. No, don't. Don't put this in the podcast. Oh, no. That is staying. No. I, I have never heard that before. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> this always happens. I feel like somehow Paul and our team get me to sing, and I'm like always... So then it, then it, yeah, then I'm stuck. Sorry, it. everyone. No, it's great. <laughs> but this comes to the, what, I was, what, what I was trying to say about uh, <laughs> like the lightness and, and, the, and the laughter of like, how do we approach relationship with a sense of playfulness too? So that, yeah, yes, be intentional. Yes, I want to, you know, have a very uh, serious relationship of depth. Right. But if it's not wrapped in playfulness and, uh, and lightness, like I don't want to show up. Mm. I appreciate that so much about you. Paul, I think you've shared with me what a practice that you do with Laura that involves humor and sticky notes. Would, would oh, you, is yeah. that, is that, I think I'm totally putting you on the spot, yeah, yeah. but like, would you share that? It's so, it's so precious. I hope. Yeah. Hope I'm glad okay. you see it that way. Um, <laughs> so every, every morning I make Laura coffee mm-hmm. and uh, I write on a little three inch yellow sticky note. I try to write something that is either sweet to her or something that will make her laugh. And so uh, I put that on top of her coffee. And then when I get home, if she thinks it's funny or if it, if it landed, if it landed, she puts it up on this picture frame. And then so that you'll, the winners make it to the picture frame. The winners make it to the picture frame and those that don't end up in the trash. (laughs) And I, What's great about it is is this little creative act of hopefully love that starts my day. Yeah. Um, and usually the ones that uh, that make it are the ones that made her laugh. Right. Um, and, and none of them really, you know, come to my mind, and I'm sure some of them just aren't appropriate. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's been this really delightful way of hopefully letting her know how much. Uh, we're, I'm in it to win it and mm. and, and want to cherish and, and celebrate our, our love and laughter together. I can't believe you just said in it to win it. That's really funny. <laughs> no, but it is so sincere, Paul. And mm. I, I, I love that you are being creative about the ways that you express your love in a, in a daily way. I mean, I think here's the thing with relationships, you know, whether it's with our partners, with our kids, it, it's just like what we were saying. We can go into autopilot so yeah. easily. And it's um, it's easy to fall into the rhythms of uh, and monotony of our day to day and shared life together. And I think any way that we can kind of puncture um, the 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 rhythm of our day with something that's like a moment of surprise. It reminds me of the episode that we did on awe and wonder, at, and just that to live in that kind of radical amazement of one another to be like, Hey, you are this mystery of a human being living life alongside of me. And that's incredible. And whether it's making your partner laugh or expressing that in a regular way, I just, I appreciate that because I do think we need that. We need to kind of orient in that way to the mystery of who the other person is and not take it for granted. Right. Right. And it's such a, it's a way of walking through this world with with vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, and this is something that I do. You know, I feel like you've modeled so well in our conversations, where, where 
you invite us into your life in ways <laughs> that I think um, are gifts that you don't quite quite realize in, in those moments. And mm. you walk around this world with such an open heart. And mm. I wonder if you can share a little bit about not turning away from that vulnerability and mm. continuing to just be open hearted about it if if it feels like it's a, yeah. a space to do so. I think um, it's really funny because I do, I think, I forget that we're recording. That's the problem. <laughs> like the problem is I'm like just totally in the moment and mm. I and I don't realize that we're recording these conversations, um, as funny as that sounds. You know, when Richard was talking about values and he talked about devotion and we were spending some time on that one mm-hmm. in the first, first episode, um, I felt like I really connected deeply when we got to the description of devotion as devotion to the sacred heart um, and not just the traditional Catholic understanding of mm-hmm. what that means, but devotion to the sacred heart of the universal Christ in me and in you and in everything. And I, I do really love the imagery of the sacred heart, a heart outstretched in front um, on fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Leading the <laughs> As, way. Yeah. The, it's this, it's this orient. Uh, I keep saying orientation. It's this, um, it's a posture of radical willingness, as we've been talking about, and um, it's also what I feel is true about creativity, mm. which is it's this vulnerable pouring out of self, mm. of of allowing and letting out and letting go. That is the creative act. That is manifesting, and I, you know, I do think that that. I, I wouldn't say that it's been a pra- it's not been a willing practice. It's not mm. been like, oh, I'm seeking to live my life this way. It's more that I feel that life has done that to me. Mm. And you know, maybe back to our conversation about grace and works. This is where I feel like this is a little bit of grace in my life. Yeah. Um, my heart is has been broken and is breaking in new ways mm. all the time. And um, you know, the image of Mary saying let it let it be let it be done to me as you say and i think i've said before i always hate how she's portrayed in this like super meek and passive way right when it's like no it takes a badass to have that kind of courage certainly does (laughs) to just put yourself forward and out and say okay you know i keep thinking about how so much of my life seems to move through these cycles of longing loving and letting go Mm. again and again and again it's the reaching out of desire and passion it's the mingling of relationality and then it's the the willingness to let go and let die um to let go of what you thought you knew to let go into something new um to let go of what feels safe um i don't know this is the practice that's working me right now more than anything that i can say in a intellectual or cognitive way it's this is where my body's at this is the work i'm mm. i'm i feel like i'm being invited into um with my kids but in my life as well yeah another name for everything will continue in a moment Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience. 
an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. And to me, this is this is church, right? It's the two or three gathered. Yeah. And the way that you embody and exude that vulnerability in, in such a inspiring way, mm. to me, this is like what we can learn from one another in community, whether we call it church or friendship, community, whatever. Like this is this is the juice of uh, the universal Christ spilling forth from mm. one another's life that we can just receive it and celebrate it and say, oh. How, how are you doing that, Brie? I want to like, I want to kind of follow in your footsteps in that way. I want to catch that fragrance um, <laughs> of me falling apart over and over again. <laughs> it's really great. Uh, well, no. I mean, like for me, like my heart is on my sleeve, but it's actually up my sleeve a little bit, where I just uh, keep it a little bit covered. And I think I appreciate the way that you are that icon of of holding that sacred heart out. Hmm. And for someone like me, it, it, it's it's beautiful and inspiring and uh, a deep. Uh, act of friendship to, mm. to continually show up in that way. Mm. Thank you, Paul. I think um, this is, you know, ironically the embodiment of so much of what we've been talking about of yeah. just what a critical role community plays because, you know, it's love that invites us into love. It's that deep that calls to deep. It's the the ways in which can in, in which we can walk alongside each other and say, oh, oh you're a mess. Me too. <laughs> oh, look, you're falling apart. That's so great. Mm. So am I. <laughs> I, one of my best friends says it's like a it's like a blender on high, right? It's like mm. your life is just a blender with all these different <laughs> things, and the lid is often off. Mm. It's just like you know things are spilling That's out. Good. But I, I think this is part of what I feel Richard is is helping us all with is to move toward our humanity, not away. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, to move toward and embrace what's messy and and not try to systematize it or put it into separate boxes. I just. I, I feel so freed by the ways in which he's inviting us to be more human. Yeah. I would love to hear more f- from you about stepping into that humanness as a, as a parent, trying to teach your kids um, outside of the traditional church walls, how to embody this, this way of being in the world. I, I, Cause I think you, you know, through your writing, through your work, you've highlighted different ways of, um, actualizing or operationalizing some of these very theoretical things but putting them in concrete mm. uh, cases and practices for kids to to begin to see something bigger yeah 
I mean, I don't know what I'm doing. We talk about this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a no expert here, but I, I do know that we get this question a lot because I think for many of us as, as young parents, we're terrified of, of um, our kids. You know, we know that our kids need a strong container, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But we're, we also know that if we just kind of unconsciously send them to Sunday school, they're going to be receiving a lot of other stuff too. So it's a tension point for so many of us to think about how do we create healthy containers for our kids and um, how do we offer these teachings to them in a way that's appropriate for where they're at. And I think, I, I think we've talked about this before, but for me, it's about rhythm mm. and establishing a kind of rhythm in our day where uh, contemplation is given lots of different expressions, whether it's play or music or quietness or meditation, but trying to just allow them to feel into the natural rhythm of how that can be centered in our day and how that can be a value and making that a priority. Um, they call them their little rituals. Uh -huh. You know, it's like for whatever reason, they love the word rituals. They're like, Mama, we could do a ritual. Um, and I have drums set up, like, you know, hand drums set up uh, in, in the living room. And there's instruments that are scattered around. And we do try to find pockets where it's either if they're sitting with me in prayer early in the morning or ending our day maybe with chanting or drumming, or maybe it's just play. Hmm. I'm telling you, if you have boys, like <laughs> just, it's just like, this is something that's really just mystifying me right now. But my kids love playing ninja, which turns out, do. yeah, I mean, like it's an amazing way to teach uh, a lot of powerful truths because hmm. I just pretend to be the sensei and they go with it. And then I'm just like, feel the oneness everywhere and they're like yes i feel it sensei and like we just like totally get into this role play and imagination of like meditation and all these concepts that i think um they get so much more readily when we're playing and so yeah. I, I don't know i think playfulness is a practice yeah. it is just as valuable as sitting down to meditate but as it pertains to the to the bigger questions about you know how do we teach our kids about god you know, I think it's okay to be, um, to allow a, a literal, you know, kind of phase to pass through our kids to allow some of that dualistic kind of good guys, bad guys mm. language. Mm -hmm. I think it's nerve wracking for us because we're like, yes, but how do we make them non-dual at age seven, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I think story is powerful. Mm -hmm. And whether it's stories from the scriptures or it's Harry Potter, as I've shared you know, or it's Narnia, or it's Tolkien, it's, you know, I, I think allowing story to to be a part of how we parent and not to stress so much about needing to create the meaning for them right? or explain to them what the meaning should be, but just allowing them to, to create their own levels of meaning as they're ready for it. Yeah, I'm so with you on that. I mean, my kids aren't of that age where I'm reading them those books, but I know for me growing up, it was oddly the Old Testament stories in this that like just took my imagination in flight. And I don't totally. remember layering of meaning being put upon me, which I think is such a gift. Right. Because then I, I mean, just living inside the Garden of Eden and being like, what, what kind of place is this? Or wow. Noah's Ark with all, living with all these beasts of air and field. Yeah, yeah. Like, that just like, I remember it just blowing my mind, like trying to put myself in those stories. Right. Um, so I'm right there with you and uh, letting the stories 
take them where they're going to take them and and not trying to layer the meaning that you want them to take away at this early age. Yeah. And I do, I do want to say, you know, as we look at the year and as certain liturgical holidays come up, yeah, I do agree that we need to be intentional you yes. know, about things like atonement around Easter, for instance, because that's everywhere. And it's, it's, it feels like if, if you are in any kind of a Christian context, your kids just pick up on that language. And so I do think there's um, alternative ways of exploring how we can create rituals together as mm-hmm. families. And, you know, I mean, I, I think I've made it pretty clear that I'm, you know, a church mutt or a, a non, what would I call myself? Like a, a spiritual mutt. I a thought. spiritual mutt. Yeah. yeah. I don't really belong to any church, <laughs> uh, Sunday church experience. But one of the freedoms about that uh, has been that it it allows me to be creative with my kids mm. about how to create rituals around liturgical holidays, around things that I think are important to celebrate. And they tend to be obviously seasonal things as well. And then to find our own ways to tell those stories, to uh, to look to nature, to animate their curiosity and their awe and wonder, and then to use nature as a, as a point, um, as a springboard for conversations like, death and resurrection Mm. or um yeah or evolution Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. yeah when you take the christ-soaked world seriously that's it all of a sudden everywhere is is teaching christ i feel like if all we do is inspire awe and wonder in our kids Mm. like that seems like that's a that's a like a capital v value to Mm -hmm. to live by as parents is to inspire their awe and wonder their curiosity uh, to move toward what they're interested in. Rowan is strangely obsessed with like architecture right now. Like (laughs) he does this thing where he grabs like random piles of trash of things throughout the house and then he stacks them. I call them the Rowan stacks. Interesting. And he'll like take like paper and a cup and a straw and like a pencil and then he'll just kind of like stack it all up and balance it out, you know? But it's like the way his mind is working right now, like he's very curious about structures. Mm-hmm. Like the other day we're sitting there and he's just looking up at the ceiling. He's like, mama, how's it holding all that weight? This gotta be so heavy. Cause like Soren is up there. He's not <laughs> falling through. And like the cat's up there, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's just where his mind's at. So I'm like, isn't that amazing? Yeah. You know? And like, we're looking at pictures of bridges and interesting buildings. And I'm like, isn't this amazing? that like human ingenuity has has uh, created all these structures. And so like moving to where our kids are curious, like yeah. paying attention to what they are paying attention to feels like another road for us as parents, or at least one that for me feels uh, unencumbered by shoulds. It's just like, that's easy. That's the flow, you know, to go where they're going and yeah. then to animate their unique little essence and what's popping up in them. I love that that following the, their curiosity mm-hmm. and just trying to encourage that. I mean, for my daughter, I came recently when we were in a park and there's these huge cottonwood trees, mm. and she's just like, and then she discovers some of the roots, and she's like, "How? Like, what are these?" And I'm trying to explain that like there's a whole root system underneath us right now that like doesn't matter if you pave over it, they're still outstretching looking for water uh-huh. and to see her little mind grapple with that and try to be like how is that even possible <laughs> and so then trying to follow that curiosity of um you know getting books and trying to just not let it just fall into just another thing that adults say mm-hmm. but something that is uh, a, 
a celebrated mystery of this natural world that we are a part of that we're not so disconnected from. Yeah, totally. Well, should we look at some listener questions? Let's do it. As we've said that Richard wasn't able to be here um, when we recorded this uh, live. And so we had some extra questions that were left over from season three that since they were related to uh, parenting, that uh, we were kind of given the leeway just to have Bree and I respond to them. So we're going to go ahead and do that when no way are we thinking that we are Richard. He was just not there during this recording. So we're going to continue with that thread. We will try to impersonate his voice though, right, Paul? We will try. We will try. Okay. Here's question number one. As a mother attempting to follow the Christian contemplative path, I am parenting two young children, 19 months and six. Father Richard, can you speak to how we can give Christianity to our children in a way that provides them the structure that they need, yet the freedom to wrestle, question, and grow to an embodied spirituality? Brian Paul, how do you approach the Christian tradition with your children? Man, that's the question, isn't it? That's the that question. Million dollar question, yeah. One of the things I appreciate um, about the way she framed the question is embodied spirituality, embodied Christianity. And I think, you know, part of my own healing process has been to just recognize that as I grew up a little girl in a, a more conservative version of our faith, there were some profoundly damaging ideologies that were handed to me about, you know, about being female, about the fact that God was presented as exclusively masculine and that the female characters tended to be problematic. And, um, right. you know, that there weren't as many, you know, that the, the female disciples uh, kind of got written out. And uh, so, so what that does to the psyche of a little girl is it says there's something wrong with you. And the ways that that has played out throughout my life and the ways in which I have felt disempowered, even to like, even to make uh, conscious decisions and choices in my life and to feel my own sense of responsibility for my own growth and, and development, as well as being kind of shackled to that really, really foundational damaging ideology that there's something wrong with me for being female. Um, mm. I think this is one of our biggest problems in Christianity that we cannot bypass or pretend isn't there. And so when I think about parenting my own kids and introducing them to, to the Christian faith, I know that Richard talks a lot about setting up that first container and that the first container is good, that talking about right and wrong and that these Bible stories can be helpful but I would add the amendment that for me as a woman and as a mother, I've worked really, really hard with my kids to change the language and the pronouns and to describe God as uh, neither female nor male or both, you know, um, to try to find transcendent imagery that's more uh, organic and more about nature. I'd rather compare God to a web or mm -hmm. to an ecosystem, or to something planetary that is concrete in nature that gives a better image than God as a king, as, you know, dominating. I think we've had enough of that ideology that's led us in negative ways. So, you know, trying to find that balance. And I know they're still getting the Bible stories. My kids go to a, a Christian school, so they still get the Bible stories, and sometimes they come back and it's a little like, oh, what? What did you learn at school today? What is that, is that a picture of a <laughs> lamb being slaughtered? Uh, Okie dokie, you know. And then you kind of have to have those corrective conversations. But I know that 
more than anything I say, my kids are watching how I live and, mm-hmm. and that I can communicate more about Christianity by my love and my desire to cultivate awe and wonder in them than anything else. How about you, Paul? Mm-hmm. Amen to all that. I just want to high five everything you just said. Yeah, you know, I we're a part of a little Mennonite church here, and I so appreciate the. There's a very non pushiness to this community, and incredibly invitational for how stories are shared and told. Mm. And so I'm very grateful that my kids are a part of uh, a community that ranges the spectrum of someone who was born Amish. Um, to someone else who is an atheist but loves the community and that there's this sense that the kingdom of God is big enough to hold everybody. Mm. And um, another point of gratitude within this community is that so far my kids have only known uh, female pastors. And so that so embodiment of feminine leadership has been very much a part of their experience and interpretation of scripture. Um, so that, that just as a container, I really appreciate. And um, we talk a lot and at, at home too, when I think about my daughter's questions when it comes to God and death and God being a part of her, um, right. what is, and what does that mean? And um, people who are different than, or who are othered and, just starting to get into some of the stories of Jesus and some of the myths of the Old Testament that provide a, an, an incredible framework of of understanding right and wrong mm. and uh, love and death and life. And I also think too, um, to your point about nature, that nature is the touchstone. Yeah. Um, and as Richard often says, the, the first Bible and trying to really help them fall in love with the world that we all share as uh, I love that the way you said that, you know, rather having your kids see God as a, as a, a web mm. and that just really resonates. And also um, examples outside the Christian faith too, who are um, very much exemplify the Christ everywhere. Yeah. Um, my daughter got a book on Malala for her birthday oh, and a t-shirt awesome. with Malala's face. And like, she's so smitten with her right now. And I couldn't be happier yeah. um, that there's this amazing um, exemplars of what, what the best of humanity has to offer, whether it is within the Christian faith or outside of it. Um, so right or wrong, that's kind of the track that I'm on. And I feel like it's very much akin to, uh, what you shared so beautifully as well, that there's trying to show it within the reality of, of life and not some of the, the molds that were given with a, yeah. a patriarchal sense of, of domination. Yes, 100%. Um, that's the major shift that I feel in the invitation of the universal Christ is like, mm. what, a, what a great message for us to give our kids. Let's give them this version of Christianity. Let's leave the hierarchy and the domination behind and offer instead the invitation to to see Christ in everything and everyone, you know, to to see the sacred in everything and everyone yeah. and to honor it. What a what a different world we get to we get to support, you know? 
if, if yeah, we and I know we're that. making mistakes. I'm oh, sure, right? Man. But like, if, well, I'm if not we're, Paul. We're, I mean, I know you are. Yeah. <laughs> you, need, you know, I am. <laughs> um, and 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 that's gonna be okay too. Yeah. And that's gonna be part of their own their own path of reorder. Yeah, totally. Should we listen to the next question? Uh, let's do it. Okie doke. Hello, Father Richard and Bree and Paul. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing there at the center and through your writings and this podcast. Um, as a father and a member of a community, I'm struggling to share uh, what it is that you have tapped into that um, is just so deeply rooted within me um, that was always there. And I'm starting to see it again as I strip away the old self. Um, as it relates to both my children who in the first half of life, when we talk about non-dualism and those sorts of things, um, we recognize that they have to build up the ego and they have to survive in that way of being in their world. However, I don't want them to build it up to the point where they have to do what I'm now doing now in my, uh, in my mid thirties and getting into the second half of my life. I'd like to see them do, have to do a little bit less of that stripping away. And I wonder what that would look like from a parent's perspective. And then in my community, um, leading others into this path that of course I recognize they have to find and walk for themselves, but showing them that there is a better way than what we've been handed in our circles and hoping that they can find it. Thank you. Love you guys. Oh, love you too. I don't even know this. I don't yeah, know his I love name. You too. I love I, that. His name isn't written down here, but um, we'll, we'll have to add that in maybe, but thank you for such a meaningful question. And I think taking it into two steps, the first one being the question about how do we give you know, the first half of life well to our kids, the container. But it, this, I call this the Santa Claus question. Like, hmm. you know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because it's like, it's yeah. 100% that Santa Claus thing where it's like, wait a minute, why aren't we still doing this thing to our kids that then we take away and then it feels like we, we played a trick and yet we know there's something very positive about the wonder and magic, but how do we do this in a way that, do, that doesn't feel like a lie that doesn't feel yeah. like, Oh, PS, I set you up. So that I, I built you a nice container, honey, so that you could struggle to break <laughs> out of it, you know, <laughs> through therapy for a decade. Um, <laughs> but you know, to the Santa Claus point, actually, just to be really literal, and this is not at all something, I mean, everybody can tackle that question however they want, but one of the things that I felt was important was, how do I honor the wonder of the myth and the story mm-hmm. and allow the story to be true without it having to be literal? Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, what what Richard is inviting us to do with Mm -hmm. so much is to say this can be true and it doesn't have to be literally true in order for it to carry magic and to be you know a wonderful time um a time full of wonder and so in a similar way i think in handing our kids this first container one of the things that i'm working on is like how can i plus the story just a little bit and not i'm not Mm. saying i'm editing the well i guess i am kind of editing the bible (laughs) I mean, like, and I'm not changing the story, but I'm trying to bring in like more feminine imagery for God or more natural imagery for God, or I'm pulling, as you've said already, Paul's stories from other places to supplement the images. And this is where I think the image is so important. 
you know, because Richard says, your image of God creates you. Mm-hmm. And what image are we handing of our ch- to our children? I think that's a really helpful question that maybe we can ask as a guiding principle. So it's like, as we share the stories, as we hand off the like, the really beautiful power of the gospel and the examples in the scriptures, how do we make sure that the image we're handing is is sort of the Jesus image of love and yeah. and leave behind maybe the more damaging stories or let those fade into the background, really emphasize the transformative power of love. What do you think, Paul? That's, I mean, I honestly have so little to add. I think that is such the central, that's, that, that's the big the big vein pumping the blood of love uh, in the sacred heart, I think. And um, the, sorry to hear my children in the background. And so I'm- uh, It's awesome. I, the, I love there, it. There's a moment of, of distraction uh, with that where definitely, and I, there is something too, I think, in this transformation of love, there is always a stripping away. Mm. There is always a letting go of what is not God or is God, your image of God expands. That's right. There is, there's always going to be a sense of stripping. So uh, to your point about how do we embody this and give a, uh, this image of God to our children, um, that even if they are given the most beautiful sense of who God is, they're gonna they're gonna pile on their own you know sticky notes of yeah. deception and illusion to it totally that they're gonna have to strip away as well at least that, that's how I'm seeing it uh, yeah with with other friends who have kids older than my own um, and I'm just trying to prepare myself for that oh, yeah uh, all for the, the ways that they're gonna have to do their work right. too and know? all the blame that we're gonna get as parents <laughs> like you taught right. me this very loosey goosey universal Christ you know like what. <laughs> Whatever it's going to be for them, their version. They're going to be like, we heard those podcasts, and you and Aunt Bree are so full were of it. saying all these things. <laughs> you guys were full of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but that's that's a wonderful invitation, Paul, because I think for so many of us, we have this terror that we're going to screw it up. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe to some degree, it, it's just recognizing that we are going to make mistakes and that our kids have to go through their own journey. And, mm-hmm. and still be faithful where we can to try to offer them as much structure and clarity. But that, like, you know, it's almost like how Richard talks about the Jesus hermeneutic. Like mm-hmm. how Jesus, even Jesus used a, a certain lens on scriptures where it's like he highlighted certain things because they were in alignment with love and mercy and the transformation of society to reflect those values. So, yeah. I think let's use the Jesus hermeneutic as parents too like focus on those core values and then you know the rest will fall imperfectly into place (laughs) Mm. Mm -hmm. um and then i guess the second side of the question about how do we share this how do we how do we invite other people into it you know i just it's it's like it's so much a part of our humanness to want to share something good you know, like we want to communicate, want to share it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, oh my gosh, did you see this story? Did you read this book? Did you, you know, it's like, that's so much a joy. And so I think it's a very natural thing that we want to share these things. And yet, exactly as you asked this question, it's v- you can't force it on people. You can't force the perspective. You can't force the fit. And I think the more that we're okay with that and can, again, the Jesus hermeneutic and focusing on just loving our relationships and being supportive to each other, I think makes a greater impact and communicates more than us being like, you know, by the way, 
And and those conversations happen naturally. Wherever they happen naturally and organically, I think it's great, right? Yeah. People who are like, yeah. oh, hey, I just came across Richard Rohr for the first time and aren't you into that guy? And then you can talk about, yeah, these these are the books that I read or whatever. The conversations can happen naturally, but it's not like I can take this stuff to my grandma. You know what I mean? Like, Yes, I hear you. Yeah. And I think an, a, something in a, in a very similar kind of uh, piece would be, where do you see Christ in your community already? Right. And where can you celebrate that, encourage that? Because um, we all, you know, as we've talked about, Many times with Richard, we all hold a different part of the body of Christ, or we all are a part of a different body of Christ. And to celebrate where we see others living in that, because that's part of our work, is to see Christ in all things. Yeah. And I feel like when we are able to lo- locate, localize, celebrate Christ in the world, in community, um, it lifts up the whole body. Yeah. And it helps kind of create a, a coherent whole that we can all kind of just be a part of and acknowledge the, our, our small participation in that whole. Mm, that's beautifully said. Thanks, Paul. As we wrap up this super fun conversation um, that just kind of flew by on relationships, whether with partners, to work, to our kids, um, you have an incredible meditation on your practice of making coffee for Laura in the morning. And I wonder if you'd be willing to read it as a as a closing invitation for us all to consider how we can be um, just a little bit more intentional with our our partners, um, with how we relate, how we express our love and appreciation to the mystery of who they are, but also with our kids and also as we think about work. Would you just kind of take us into that beautiful Paul zone? No. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We'll edit that part out. Yes, uh, I'd love to. So this this came from, um, I was sitting in one of Richard's intensives that he does with the living school students. And we were talking about, I don't remember what he was teaching on, but it came to my mind like there's this beautiful uh, liturgy of hours within a lot of monastic circles. And like, how come we're not celebrating the different parts of our day that 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 mark our lives, um, that are our little rituals, mm-hmm. uh, as your kids call them, that can also be little stopping points for uh, recognition of depth and love. So this is one I called Lods of Coffee. Lods was a traditional uh, early morning, uh, one of the hours of, of prayer. So this is, uh, I called it Lods of Coffee. It could also be just called an open love letter to my mm-hmm. wife, but here we go. I make you coffee every morning. You know this and I know this but you don't know how I go about this divine ritual, do you? It begins each evening before bed as you brush your teeth. The sounds of bristles and running water is my invocation. I put her over to the kitchen and pull the coffee beans from the cupboard, grab the scale, and measure out exactly 60 grams of coffee. It takes nearly 50 cycles with a hand crank grinder to complete the transformation from whole beans to a granular collective. Our bed is calling... The right remains unfinished, but the scent of ground coffee lingers over the sleepy evening into the hope-filled morning. Awake, O sleeper, awakened by our daughter's calling to the breaking of the day. She is tickled by new sunlight, another magical hour of possibility. I put on my vestments, a bathrobe, and spectacles. I take her to the kitchen, time to get the coffee started. 
I poured the filtered water into that fancy kettle that you thought was so funny that I just had to have it. The kiddo chatters about monkeys, breakfast, and waking you up. Let mama sleep. We'll wake her later. I pour her some cereal, which she may or may not eat. The kettle whistles at me. Pay attention. I pour this now boiling tap water into our pour-over coffee vessel to heat up the glass. And if I'm honest, give it a slight cleaning. Num-num, our daughter says. Though there is no etymological basis for num-num meaning banana, I scuff over to the bananas. I pull one off the bunch, cut it in half, and offer it to her. I check the fancy kettle, still heating up. The kiddo is getting frustrated with the banana peel, but refuses my help. That stubborn independence she gets from you. Or is it me? No matter. I relish it. I return to the coffee rights while singing Hit the Road Jack, as requested. She chimes in with, What you say? Right on cue. I empty the water from the coffee vessel, now slightly cleaner, onto any lingering dirty dishes in the sink. I grab a recycled filter and pour the coffee grounds evenly into it. They await the near-boiling baptism to transfigure them from granular potential into the nectar of the gods. I grab the fancy kettle with its precise pour spout, partnered with my astute marksmanship to aim the water in circular motions, making the coffee grounds flower. I wait and watch as the water settles the grounds into a concave shape, waiting for the transformation from beans to brew tries my patience. Cow's milk? She wants milk. The water seeps in through the grounds, the essence retained and the quality deepened. The kiddo waits at the fridge with her hands gripped on the door, trying to pull it open with all of her might. At two, the magnet of the fridge door proves to be beyond her strength. I open the door and she scurries into the cool air, grabs the milk, and puts it on the floor. She hustles to her stack of glasses and locates the perfect receptacle for cow's milk. I pour into the pink plastic cup. She puts her hand underneath the milk jug to guide my apparent unsteady hand. When satisfied, she lets go and takes a big gulp. So cold, she shouts, bringing her bald fist to her cheeks and then takes another swig. I pivot back to the coffee. Again, I pour water from the fancy kettle in a circular motion over the moist grounds. I'm not quite drowning them, but I am filling them up with more than they can bear. The steady drip continues into the glass vessel. When was the first time I made you coffee? It must have been 2008. Do you remember all those glorious breakfast spreads we used to concoct before we were married, before we were dating, before we were us? Those memories are movie sets I visit at times such as these. I can see us clearly on the old checkered floor in the kitchen. I wonder, don't they know they are falling in love? Can I tell them to hurry up and marry you? The stubbornness of that stubbled man, so unsure of commitment, his capacity for love, or how love might transform him. Maybe I knew more than I realized. The questions were worthwhile, but it took time for me to see that the answers could only be lived into, embodied, breathed. My anxiety arose around the risk of commitment. For what if I were called to test the edges of my capacity for love? And I was petrified of the sweet wounds of love. I preferred the cheap veneer of infatuation, a preference which blinded me from those hidden caverns of love that teach the subtleties of the heart to see in the dark. When I thought I had all I could bear in love, I found that love compels me to bear more, serve more, surrender more, 
and run my finger over the wounds of love. Who was it that said, love without sacrifice is theft? It is not only the depths of my being, but in the shallows of my personality, that this surrender takes part. I have found myself free to see my foibles as the aloof goof that holds imaginary arguments with you, doesn't refill the soap dispenser, sulks when he is upset, and is a bull about locking doors. And you love me still. So another layer is peeled. In your presence, my vulnerability grows and my exposure to my depths and shallows are laid bare. Can I continue this way? To expand in the shape of our love? I see this question revealed in you too, you know. You have taught me the fidelity of love. I wonder what I have taught you. This act of making you coffee is one of my practices in service to that fidelity. This process takes longer than an electric coffee maker or walking to the coffee shop just a block away. But I like the idea of you starting with the creation of my love for you, whether I feel like it or not. The image of you heading out to your classroom with a room full of students filtering in and you holding a mug containing the hand ground, precisely poured over, slow brewed coffee that was born out of abiding love, particularly for you, keeping your hands warm and your eyes open. I'm running out of time. The coffee is close to done, but not quite. I pour another round of hot water from the fancy kettle onto the grounds. Wake mama up, she asks. One minute, I say. Okay. The coffee is slowly dripping to its natural fulfillment. The drops stop. The coffee is done. I fill your thermos with the night black coffee made with you in my mind. Let's go wake up mama. The kiddo jumps into my arms, bouncing up and down as she anticipates waking up with a kiss. I plop her in the bed right next to you. She crawls up to your face. You are obviously awake, but to her, you are in a deep sleep. She saddles up right on top of you and... Good morning, you whisper. She giggles. Morning, love, I say. Coffee's ready. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. In the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.